Good morning and welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It's day 734 and I'm here at Reaching Africa's Unreached in Uganda as we're going to be taking a look at Isaiah 44 today. And behind me, you see what I regard to be one of the saddest sights in the world, and that is empty bookshelves. We are, this is the place we're staying while we're here. It's Jacob and Carol Lee's old house. They've, they've cleared out of here to make ready for a missionary family that's currently raising support to come here. And so we're staying here in their old place and all of Jacob's books have been removed. So a bunch of empty bookshelves, which always makes me a little sad because, you know, shelves are made for books. Anyway, let's pray as we get into Isaiah 44. Father, thank you so much for your love and thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that is a blessing to us. Thank you for the day-by-day time we get to spend in your word. We pray that you would help us to learn from Isaiah 44, hear what you are saying to us, that we would receive your word by faith, that we would treasure it up in our hearts, that we would respond to it with love and obedience. Help us to see Jesus and to follow him more closely and faithfully for the time we spend with you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses." Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight to do do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He takes it and shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. 
he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you for the womb, from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is Isaiah 44, the word of God. It's a, a powerful chapter at exposing the foolishness of idolatry and also calling us as God's people to trust in our God, the one true God. And so it confronts us with our natural human tendency toward idolatry, and it confronts us in our natural human tendency to doubt the one true God. It's so, like, the utter definition of foolishness is to doubt the power and strength of the one true God, the one who made us, the one who chose us, the one who's redeemed us, to doubt him, and instead to put our trust and our hope in man-made idols, in, in made things, created things, rather than the creator, which cannot help us. But, you know, that's part of the insanity of sin. That's part of the foolishness of the human heart. And it is natural to our human condition. And even we as believers, the people of God, we are the Israel. We are the Jacob, the servant of God. We are the one whom God has formed from the womb and will help. We are the people of God. And yet we fall into the same kinds of traps as unbelievers at times 
where we're doubting the goodness or the power or the care of the one true God, and we're instead looking to idols to meet our needs. So first, God gives reason for Israel to hope in him, for his people to put their trust in him. And he calls us his servant, and he reminds us that he has chosen us. He says that in verse 1, and he says it again in verse 2, whom I have chosen, whom I have chosen. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, if he is your father and you are his child because you believed in Christ Jesus as your redeemer, it is because God has chosen you. We are God's children by adoption, and adoption is a sovereign act where the parent chooses the child and says, I will take you, I will receive you, I will make you mine, and I will be yours. That is the covenant promise that God has made. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I have chosen you. That should give us great comfort. This God who's chosen us is also the God who made us. Twice in this passage, he says he formed us from the womb, and he says he will help us. He gives us great and precious promises of giving us relief in our distress and of being not only our God, but the God of our children after us. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So he gives us relief in our distress, water on the thirsty ground, streams on the dry ground, and he promises to be God to our children after us. He makes covenantal generational promises. There is no God but our God. This God who has chosen us, this God who has formed us in the womb, this God who helps us and makes precious promises to us, he is the one true God. And the way he puts out this test, a challenge, as it were, to other claimants, would-be gods, he says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. This is the unique power of God in that he is able to accurately predict the future because he is the one who controls the future. We've seen that in our studies in Daniel. We'll see it again in a couple of days when we're back in Daniel for Daniel 4. We've seen it also here in Isaiah. The end of this chapter, did you notice that God names Cyrus as the chosen one who is going to deliver his people from their bondage and captivity and cause Jerusalem to be rebuilt and cause his people to be resettled in their homeland. Cyrus is a guy who hasn't even been born yet. The empire he's going to reign over isn't the dominant empire in the world yet. Isaiah is giving this prophecy more than 150 years before Cyrus's ascension to global dominance. And yet God names him by name. Jerusalem hasn't even been destroyed yet, and God's already prophesying the rebuilding of it. That, that gives some uh, critics of the Bible fits, and they say, well, there's no way Isaiah could have written this. It must have been written much later because there's no way he'd be able to predict the future. And they miss out on the fact that that's the whole point. The whole point is that God does predict the future. And one of the reasons why the book of Isaiah was accepted as being true scripture is because it made these prophetic predictions, and they came true, and that confirmed it as the word of God. God alone knows what's coming. One of the reasons why we, we turn to idols is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what might come, and we're grasping for some level of control. 
The difference between the one true God and idols is that the one true God, he has all power and all sovereignty. And part of why that scares us is because we cannot control him. We are not in control of him. He commands and controls us. And so we need to submit to him, and we don't like that. We want to be in control. And an idol, being a creation of man, is something that we can at least have the appearance of control over. We can at least pretend that we are running the show when we're dealing with an idol. We know how it works. You make certain sacrifices, you do certain things, and you get a certain return. We talk about a return on investment. That's probably the most common idol in our American culture, modern American culture, is wealth. And Jesus said very clearly, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and be devoted to the other. You can't serve both God and wealth. Wealth is an idol. When we serve it, when we say, what's going to be my return on my investment? What's going to be my uh, account security? You know, we even talk about having financial security. We put our hope in these things because we think we can control them, but we can't. They can't help us. We can't control them. God is in control, and we have to trust him. There is no God besides him. There is no rock. I know not any. I love that verse. He's the rock. What does that mean? That means he's the one we can build the foundation of our life on. He's the one who holds us secure. He's the firm foundation of our identity of our security, of our hope. And one way we know that we're slipping into idolatry is if we're finding our identity, our security, or the foundation of our hope for the future in something other than God. It could be in ourselves, our own gifts, our own abilities. It could be in our bank account or our retirement account. It could be in our nation and the greatness of America. You know, whatever it is that we're looking at, could be our children, or even our marriage can become an idol. If again, we're finding our identity, our security, and the hope for our future in these things. Another test of idolatry is the if only test. If we said, well, if only I had more money, I'd be able to do whatever I need to do. Or if only I had more time to relax. You know, Americans make a great idol out of leisure time and relaxation, taking some me time. Right? All idolatry really are various forms of worshiping ourselves or serving ourselves rather than giving ourselves to God in complete trust of his ways. And so we need to be examining our hearts to see what the idols are, and we need to be confessing them to God and turning away from them and turning back to God because he is our God. He's the one who's promised he will not forget us, he will forgive us, he will redeem us. I love verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. You know, it's one thing for God to talk about Cyrus when he hasn't come around. He's not going to come around for more than 150 years. But here, he's talking about the finished work of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, which won't be accomplished in history for more than 700 years. And yet God speaks of it as an accomplished reality because in the eternal decree of God, it is fixed and it is accomplished. The only way for our sins to be forgiven is through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so when he says, I've blotted out your transgressions and your sins, I've redeemed you, he's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the one and only redemption of sin. God has done it. God has, God has done it. We now live 2,000 years plus on this side of the cross, or 2,000 years this side of the cross. 
how much more should we rejoice in the fact that God has redeemed us? The God who made all things, the God who upholds all things, the God who frustrates and makes fools of diviners. Verse 25, I love. Just, just turn on cable news programs and watch the prognosticators try to talk about what the stock market's going to do or what the economy's going to do. They're always wrong. God makes fools out of the diviners. Those are our modern-day diviners, the talking heads on the cable news programs, and God makes fools of them. But he confirms the word of his servant. He fulfills the counsel of his messengers. God's word is never foolish, and it's never foolish to trust in God's word. And to prove that again, he ends by naming Cyrus. We can trust God, and we dare not trust idols. We need to turn away from the idols and serve and fear and love and worship and trust the one true and living God who made us, who chose us, who redeemed us, who keeps us, who helps us, and who makes great and precious promises that he will not fail to keep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who is the yes of every promise that you've ever made. Every promise of God finds its yes in him. And so through him we say amen to you, and we give you thanks for being our good and gracious God. Help us to trust in you. Forgive us for turning aside to idols. Forgive us for wanting to have control of our lives, at least in the illusion of control. Help us to rest in the beautiful, powerful truth that you are in control and that we do not need to be afraid. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was Isaiah 44. Tomorrow we'll move on to Isaiah 45. I hope you do have a blessed day in the Lord.